Well, if you're new here, I happen to be in my doctor's lab coat because we're in a series called Checking Your Vital Signs. You know that if you go into a doctor's office, first thing they're going to do is check your vitals. You may not think anything's wrong. You may think you're doing great. Maybe your body hasn't yet given some sign. But when they check your vitals, they can say, man, you're near a heart attack. You've got two clogged arteries. Something like that will always tell the truth. Your vitals don't lie. You may lie to yourself, but they don't lie. And that's what a doctor wants to look at to assess how you're doing. Now, we're looking at how I assess that I'm doing well in God's sight in many areas. Last week, we talked about spiritual life. How are we doing in that? This week, we're talking about our financial lives and generosity. Everybody lives today with a sense of pressure. The stress over money is crazy. I saw a survey last week that said the average person in America feels like you got to be worth $6 million before you consider yourself well off. Duh, that's just insane. So what I want to do to begin with in this message is kind of level the playing field. So I'm going to ask everybody, have you ever worried about money in all your life? If you've ever worried about savings, if you've ever felt like, I don't know if I've saved enough, I don't even know how much I have saved, or I haven't saved anything. If you've ever worried about retirement, if you ever think, I don't know what that number is, I don't even know what it, I ought to be walking around with that number, or I should have started sooner. If you've ever worried because you have blown your budget, if you've never blown your budget because you never had a budget. If you're ever worried when you think about spiritual life and giving and you've never tithed before <clears throat> and you don't know that God would approve of your lifestyle, you know, given all the poverty in our world, you get a little bit worried when you think about Jesus saying, whatever you've done for the least of these, <clears throat> you've done for me. Whatever you have not done for the least of these, you haven't done for me. Or how hard is it for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? If you've ever worried, if you have kids, and you think, man, I don't know that I've ever taught them well enough about handling money. Or, I don't know that I've modeled financial well enough. Or, I don't know how well they're going to do with money. If you've ever worried because you're not in a house yet, and you're afraid housing prices are going to continue to go up. If you've ever worried because you have a house, and you're afraid housing prices are not going to go up enough. If you've ever worried about the economy as a whole or the stock market, if you've ever worried that if the wrong candidate gets elected, you could be in real trouble, if you've ever worried they're both the wrong candidate and we're all in trouble, if you've ever worried about finances in any way, just raise your hand. Yeah, look at that. See that? That's a universal experience, financial anxiety. So to remove the shame, I'm going to ask you, if you know the person, if you know the person, turn to the one right next to you and just say, this message is for me, but you need it more, if you know them. <laughs> so here's what you need to know. God does not intend for me or you to live in financial anxiety or pressure. And not just that, he actually wants you to be a great manager, a steward of your finances. So sometimes in churches, when money gets talked about, the only thing that gets talked about is giving. But actually, all of your financial life matters to God. If you're a Bible person, you might know 
a chapter in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31 talks about a woman of great character. And it's kind of striking because it praises in particular her financial leadership, her financial abilities. And this is what the writer says. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household. Well, that's because she doesn't live in Texas with ERCOT that let us be without power in the state for a whole week. Okay. I only wanted to throw that in because I'm still venting about mismanagement and bad leadership. Okay. So God doesn't want us to live burdened by pressure or anxiety in my financial life. And so many do. Now, by the way, your first financial advisors were mom and dad. And if you didn't have a good example, well, you may think it's normal to live the way you're living. When in fact, it might not be. That's what we want to check on today, right? So I, I can remember living in my family thinking, I don't want to live like this. I don't like the way they live, but I'm going to have to make some choices different to escape this. So this, this morning, we're going to walk through four vital signs. Four, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Four vital signs, if we went to the doctor, of financial health. This is not about God doesn't love me or God loves me. It's not about that. It's how God gives you some principles to do life well on planet Earth. Is that bad? That's good. God's for you. This doesn't make God love you more or less. He just wants to help you. And I don't know why we'll take somebody's advice with no proven skill and we'll reject clear scripture where God says, I've made this whole world and I'll tell you what works. If you'll do it my way, it'll work. So these are vital signs that are basic, okay? Nothing complicated. This is going to be finance 101. If you need better skills than this, uh, Bill and Maureen Sitter handle financial freedom classes in our church, and they help you learn to get a grip on money before it takes you into horrible bondage, okay? So this is not going to be finance 401. It's going to be finance 101. A lot of people get into trouble financially one way or another because they never get honest with themselves and they never get honest before God. So here we go. Here are four financial vital signs from Dr. Godwin. <laughs> Number one, get a realistic budget. Budget. Some of you ladies can't spell budget. Budget. There's more in the Bible about that than you might think. The book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. Proverbs 24, 27 says, put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. So two categories, two sequences. Outdoor work, fields ready, do it first. Then build your house. So here's the idea behind this passage. Financially, there are two directions money can flow. Money can flow towards you. Money can flow away from you. If it flows towards you, that's income. If it flows away from you, that's expense. If more is flowing towards you than away from you, you might be in good shape, right? If more is flowing away from you, you're spending more than you're making, there's a good chance you're on the verge or you're already in some deep yogurt. It's not good. Remember Jack Taylor, who was a pastor in this city so many years ago, said if, you're, if your income, if your out 
if your outgo is greater than your income, then your upkeep is going to be your downfall. You can't spend more than you make. That's the, that's the deal. Now, in the ancient world, fields, because they lived in an agricultural economy, they grew crops, and they could sell those crops. They, they were income-producing, these fields, right? Houses were income-consuming. So a field in the ancient world was an asset. A house in the ancient world was a liability. Now, in our world today, what's a house? Is it an asset or is it a liability? Well, it, 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 it depends. It's an interesting question. There's a guy named Robert Sheeler. He's a Yale economist. He won the Nobel Prize, and he poses this question. From, nine, uh, from 1890 to 2012, 1890 to 2012, that's 122 years. Adjusted for inflation, how much did housing prices in the United States rise? Well, according to Robert Sheeler, this Yale economist, zero, zero percent if adjusted for inflation. It didn't go up. Now, I say that because we live in such a weird time. Housing prices are soaring. They're bizarre. And we get this idea, maybe young adults do, if I can just get in that house, that's my golden ticket. I won't have to worry about money ever again. I can blow off the budgets. There's just this secret where if I can get in a house, then I'll be doing great. Not always. Some of us are old enough to remember what happened to the housing market in 2008. The whole country tanked. Anybody remember 2008? And again, this is Robert Sheeler between 2007 and 2011, the value of American homes fell $7 trillion. A whole lot of folks in different parts of the country who said, man, I'm desperate to get into a house. And then all kinds of lending institutions almost got criminal that they were happy to make loans, bad loans, uh, to marginalize, financially marginalized people, under-resourced people, and they got destroyed. And they lost their home. They lost their credit rating. It was disastrous. They should never have had a loan made like that. They couldn't afford it. You know, a lot of times young people will go under unbelievable pressure because there's this myth in our day, if I can just get in the house, that's my golden ticket. I just want to say a lot of times it doesn't work that way. So there's no substitute, none, for actually living by a budget, unless you're the federal government. They don't. They get to print money. You and I don't, right? So get your fields ready first, then build. Figure out what your income's going to be. And Jesus was very familiar with this. He told the story in Luke 14, about verse 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, because people would do that in their fields called watchtowers. Very common. He says, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish, everybody who sees it's going to make fun of you, saying this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. So figure out what your income is, then allot your expenses, and don't allow your expenses to get above your income level. That's that's what God has provided you with. We can't live on somebody else's budget, somebody else's lifestyle. you got to live on yours. I, I travel the world. I've been with kings. I've been with royalty. I've been on yachts. I've been on cruises. I've been on jets. I've been with the lifestyle of the rich and famous and some actors out in Malibu. And I had to come to sobriety to say, Ricky, you don't live on that. You don't live on his income. 
You don't live. You got to live in yours. Don't get so hot to trot that you get all jacked up thinking that's going to be my world. Nope, that ain't my world. That'd be nice, but I don't live there. So how dumb it is to try to keep up with somebody else. And you don't know all the time. Maybe mom and dad financed the down payment so the kids could get in and then afford the payment. There's a lot of variables you don't know about. So you've got to be making this decision based on what you make and how much you owe and what doesn't put enormous stress on the marriage. And if you got the idea, well, honey, if nothing goes wrong, something always goes wrong. You got to know that always. There's enormous pain when this happens. And it doesn't take a lot of brains. It just takes discipline and a lot of work. Financially, one of the ways you can divide the human race, put them in two categories. Everybody's either a nerd or a hippie. If you're a nerd, you love numbers. You love to plan. You love to count. You love to be in control of stuff. If you're a financial hippie, you don't care. You just go with the flow. You don't like plans. You just like to be free. And every marriage consists of one nerd and one hippie. That's part of why in marriage, the number one source of conflict is most often money. Part of wise financial planning and management makes such a difference is because more than anything else, it puts a huge strain on married couples. So we're just saying to you early in the game, don't go there. God doesn't want marriages to end over financial crisis and stress that you put yourself into. So in your life, if you're married, every once in a while, you got to nerd it up. You just have to say, okay, we're, we're out of balance. We're not healthy here. And I'm going to have to do some hard work. If you go to the doctor and he says, look, you're 50 pounds overweight. Well, this is not how to be perfect. Let's say you only drop 35. Well, you're making progress when you go back for your checkup, correct? Lord, I try. I'm trying. Okay. It's not hard. I mean, make progress. At least make that your goal. I'm working at this. How are you doing on the budget deal? That's the first vital sign. I'm living with the budget. I know what my income is. I track my expenses. I keep my expenses below my income. Now, while you're rating yourself on that one, one of the best definitions of a budget I ever heard says a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. That's the first, Viola. Get on a budget. That's the best way to stay safe and sound and stable. And then remember, I can't spend what I don't have or I'm going to pay dearly for it in a short order. Number two, second vital sign, freedom from debt. The best you can, freedom from debt. Debt is such a crusher. I get it. Some of you are financially very sophisticated, and a few would say debt's actually a great tool if I can leverage that to create great wealth. Well, generally, maybe for some, that's great. But I have to tell you, as somebody who teaches the Bible, if you read the Bible, it's got a fair amount to say about debt, and none of it is good. This is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verse 7. It says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Teach your children that. You can like it or not like it. The best way is to say, kids, you're gonna give, I'm going to teach you principles so you don't get in the poor area, because then the rich rule over you, and you become a slave to the, the lender, right? That's a principle. Why wouldn't you want to get out of that? 
I don't want to be in, I don't want to be in bondage to anybody but God Almighty. See, and a lot of people are. And so forget race and culture. I don't care what mom and daddy did. I don't care how they live. You said, I'm not living that way. And I'm going to make the choices so I don't live poor. I'm not going to depend on the federal government. I, God's given you some principles to take care of you. I'd rather fall into the hands of God than my government. I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat. I don't want hands on me. So that picture of slavery is the bondage of debt. Talk about slavery. A whole lot of folks listening to me know what that feels like. You've gotten in over your head, and then there's some guilt. There's some shame, and then there's hiding. Then you go into avoidance mode because you just don't want to think about it, and that makes it worse. So you get a credit card. You max it out. So I'll get another credit card and try to pay that credit card off, and that makes it worse. The ditch just gets deeper and deeper. I, <laughs> you start getting messages from collection agencies and phone calls and they just kill you. I saw a picture online of a collection agency, and this is what's on their window. Squeezebloodfromturnip.com. Squeezebloodfromturnip.com. And that is the cloud, guys. We live in a culture that encourages you to go out there. Two big words when it comes to money, more and now and you're going to be bombarded by those messages all the time that tell you the secret to joy is one more purchase, especially now as Christmas approaches. Every day we're flooded with little stories, little persuasions that says, oh, baby, you're not content right now. You shouldn't be content, but commitment is just one purchase away, just one more away. And all these products come into our lives. Use me, buy me, eat me, try me, rub me, drive me, wear me, put me in your hair. You'll be content. <laughs> Between more and contentment is a gap so vast, nobody's ever made that journey. More will never lead you to content. And I'll demonstrate that. Real simple question, and you know the answer to it. Who's more content, the guy with $10 million or the man with 10 kids? The correct answer is the man with 10 kids because he doesn't want any more. The, 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 well, you're listening. Okay. The, the Apostle Paul has an interesting statement about contentment. He's writing to Timothy, a young man, and Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great advantage for we brought nothing into the world and we ain't taking anything out. Good to renew my mind. See, to know God, to love God, and be content with what God has provided is a great peaceful thing, but it's a learned skill. See, it's part of your spiritual journey. You're not born with contentment. You learn contentment. I'm grateful I woke up. I'm grateful my legs, my brain, my eyes, my ears are functioning. I'm grateful I have a, have a job. I'm grateful I have a wife that loves me. I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for my wonderful friends. I'm grateful I'm gladfully important. I mean, I could go a half hour just on what I'm grateful for. There's a whole lot I'd like to have I don't have. But then I'll forget about being grateful and content. Yeah. I am content. God didn't make a mistake. So I'm going to live the best. When I get to heaven, you get to heaven, it's not going to be about what did he get, what did she get. It's going to be about what did you do with what I gave you, and you get the same reward as the guy with 10 talents. Well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you two. I gave you one. I gave you 10. You doubled it. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So what do I care? 
You know, what do I get, 90, 100 years on this earth, and that's it, and then the rest of eternity? I'm thinking ahead for this deal. This is a short term. You got a shelf life, <laughs> and it's not that long, okay? Be thinking about the rest of eternity because that's where you'll be. There is a monastery, a spiritual community, and it's very sparse. Monks practice hospitality there. They will sometimes bring a guest into a room that's barely furnished. And they'll say to the guest, if you want anything at all, just let me know. I'll come and show you how to get along without it. We need to say that to our kids. You can't have everything. How to get it all. Nobody gets it all, okay? There are basically two roads to contentment. One of them is more, and the other is learning how to be grateful for what you have. The Bible says the first road is a sucker's game. This is from Dave Ramsey. He said, the average millionaire in America, the average, drives a four-year-old car with no payments. He says, millionaires are generally normal people, not all wearing designer clothes with sports cars in the driveway. They're people who stay away from debt and live on less than they make. Dave Ramsey. See, we live in a society that in I don't know, inundates us. It just overwhelms us always with, I have to have more. I've got to get more. You can have it now. You can have it now. You can have it all now. And there are these institutions that are happy to lend you money so you can have more now. So we have all these expressions, buy now, pay later. Well, gee, who wouldn't want to do that? Or 90 days, same as cash. Now, that's a laugh. 90 days is not the same as cash. Do you know? Do you know what's the same as cash? Cash. Cash is the same as cash. It's really interesting. People who do that, buy now, pay later, 88% never pay it off in time, and they end up having to make credit card payments with rip-off credit card rates. That's why those offers are so prominent. See, people aren't dumb who are doing that. They're smart. In the United States, we live under, this was my last estimate, $900 billion worth of credit card debt. In one book I read not long ago, the author noted that Sears makes more money on credit payments than on the merchandise they sell. Same for car dealerships. That's why the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, which was the financial center of that day, ancient world, says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's a good debt. Oh, the love. See, but beyond that, debt is pretty much slavery. So I want to say a word about trying to get out of debt because I know it can feel overwhelming. Here's a little story about how it's possible to begin the journey. Anne Lamott wrote a book. It's called Bird by Bird. <laughs> she took it from an episode in her brother's life. He was supposed to do a book report on birds. He put it off. Now it's due the next day. He's sitting at the kitchen table, books and pictures of birds all over the place. He was overwhelmed by it, and he just started to cry. But his dad came up and put his arm around him, and he said, son, just take it bird by bird, bird by bird, son. So when it comes to how you pay off debts, do it debt by debt. Dave Ramsey, in a book he wrote called The Total Money Makeover, talks about what he calls the debt snowball. Make a list of your debts. Just go home on a legal pad. Write them out there. It may scare you. 
and starting with the smallest debt first. And then start attacking the smallest one. Ask God for help because paying off debt is not about brains. It's about motivation, determination, and persistence, sticking to it. And there's something about it when you take that first one off your list and it's the smallest one and you get it paid off. You get this little surge of, I can do this. It feels good. God, you and I can do this together. Then just keep going and make that commitment of trying to get as debt-free as possible. Remember, everybody's different. This is not perfection. It's improvement. I can do better. How's that? That okay? This is about improving. And it's I think Ramsey mentions going to your surgeon and getting a plastectomy. You take those credit cards and cut them up and stop using them because they come to you for free. See, one study looked at people who went to McDonald's. You ready for this? Randy, I bet you didn't know this one. Come on. And, And Randy's a financial planner and a CPA and really good. But if you use a credit card at McDonald's to pay for a meal, people who do that spend 47% more money than people who walk up and use cash. There's something about the way our brains are wired that registers the use of cash in a way that doesn't register when I use a credit card. You want that supersize? Yeah, throw that in. Yeah, throw that into it. Yeah, and I'll add that on that too. When I'm paying cash, I'm thinking, how much more? No, no, just give me the burger and the fry and the regular drink. Thank you. Isn't it funny how, how when you pay cash, it's like, You don't get out of control there. You're putting your cash on the table. That's like taking one of my organs out and putting it there. I'm I'm careful. Number three, wise saving. Wise saving. This is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 21. The wise man stores up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp all theirs down. See, they lived in an agricultural economy, so food, crops, olive oil were their resources. Wise people would save some. Fools don't. By the way, just to eliminate guilt, sometimes older people making a great income can give you all the rules of this percentage. When you're making minimum wage and you're just starting, that may not be possible. But your goal ought to be don't spend it all. Let's at least put something. If it's 10 bucks, let's put it back. And it's amazing over a period of six months how that can end up making $500 or or, or $1,000 or something for just what you might call an emergency. See, the Wall Street Journal says in our day, 70% of all Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 70%. That's a lot of people who don't need to be living paycheck to paycheck. Somebody needs to stop the insanity. I think of a guy I know who lives in a different part of the country. He's in real estate, and the real estate market was going great for him in his day, so life for him was great. He's living a great house. He's driving great cars. He's enjoying a great lifestyle. He's going on great vacations. He's going into great debt all around that, convinced it was all a tribute to his expertise in the market and his know-how. Then one day, the market corrected. That's a great little word, isn't it? Corrected. Now, we don't use that in other areas of life. Your hair didn't turn white. It just corrected. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great to just use that for other areas? It corrected, yeah. See, the market corrected, and then he's devastated. He lost the great house, the great car, 
<laughs> the great wife, the great lifestyle, and it put unbelievable strain and conflict on him, all because he neglected something the Bible talked about a long time ago. It's put in really colorful language in the book of Proverbs because it was so important. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your assets, your herds, for riches don't endure forever. You're living up here on a great salary, great title. The economy goes south. COVID steps in. Orders go down. You get laid off. It's a mess. And that happened to a lot of people uh, in their 50s and 60s. That's devastating. Always figure something can go wrong. I'm not in fear, but I'm not stupid. Something will go wrong. If you say, honey, we can get downtown in 10 minutes if there's no traffic. When is there no traffic in San Antonio? That is fantasy. That ain't reality. That's just not going to happen. I mean, this scripture couldn't be clearer. Be sure you know. Give careful attention. Uh, we might put it like this. Be sure you know how much you have. How much are you making? What have you set aside for an emergency or for the unexpected? Because if there's one thing you can expect, it's the unexpected. Something will go wrong somewhere, sometime. Be sure you know, have I got, what have I got in my 401K? Be sure you know what you've set aside for education or something. Be sure you know if you've saved anything for retirement. Now, we blow that off easily, but I'll give you a little indication of this. I was reading last week, a lot of employers, listen, off, offer matching donations for retirement funds. If you're an employee and you put so much money in for retirement, they'll match that. And people get so lazy about it that every year, $24 billion goes unclaimed because the employees are just too lazy to sign up for the program where the people they work for will just give them the money, if they ask for it. All they have to do is sign a form, and they don't sign the form. It reminds me of a famous verse in the Bible. Have a brain, saith the Lord. First retirement, chapter 40, verse 1. That's not actually in the Bible, but it ought to be. Be sure you know the condition of your life and your resource and your financial life. Be sure. How are you doing on the saving side? Again, that's your goal. And as you get longer in life, as you make more money, you ought to have a, you ought to do better at it. But you got to start somewhere, right? Just between you and God, get real. How do you grade yourself on that vital sign? And while you're doing that, one more piece of wisdom on wise saving from the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Think about people coming after you. And you love them, you care for them. And the basic Im implication here, make out a will. 70% of all Americans die without a will. Then their families who are grieving now have to deal with a financial mess because there's no will. So it's, it's weird to me, the number one reason people put off making a will is they just say to themselves, well, if I think about making out a will about what's going to happen to my money after I die, I might be more likely to die. Well, here's the good news. You are already so likely to die that making a will won't make you any more likely to die. It's already a guarantee. A will is a gift for people you love. That's wisdom. 
It's not expensive. You can get a simple will. How are you doing on that one? Well, we just married. Maybe we don't own anything. You've got some asset. You don't want it to go into probate. Make out a will. And then as you get older, as you make more money, as things change, you keep updating that will. Maybe you have little children and you want to say, if we're both killed, who do the kids go to? And over time, that will change. Keep updating that will as your life changes and circumstances change. Lord, is anybody up there? I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'll give you an illustration that happened even in our church. Uh, a couple lived together. They weren't married. They, they, they attended church here. And she lived with the guy 13 years, a good man, but not, not smart when it came to handling his, his trust, his, his finances. And one day he just fell off the chair during a Zoom conference and died, just fell off and died. And, and I said, well, what's going to happen to the business? And do you, get, do you get the house? Did he have a will? No will. And this guy's an attorney. No will. So after giving 13 years of her life to this person, she got nothing. Not the house, not the business, not the bank account. It went over to a family who has nothing to do with them, and it was wasted. And I said, I'm not in favor of you living together, but it happens. And if so, can I say to this, girls, you better have some contract. You better have something for a will so that you get something out of this deal or you get you another boyfriend. If I'm your daddy, I'm going to say, you get a will, and I want to see it, and I want to go with you to sign it. I am not going to give my life to you outside of marriage with nothing coming to me as an asset for what I gave you. And that get wisdom. In other words, I learn from people that do it wrong. Okay? And these are, this is a nice person. But that was a foolish thing. He didn't expect to die now. Nobody expects to die now. I mean, unless you've got cancer and you're on a ventilator somewhere in a machine and you know it's coming. But most of us don't think it's coming. And it comes to young and old. And you don't know when it's coming. You just know it's coming. Make out a will. Well, I don't have much. Make out a will for the little you do have. It keeps confusion out of it. If you have other, if you were formerly married, you've got other siblings, there can be a fight over your assets. Stop that with a will. Stop that. Think ahead. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate that, babe. Good advice. I'm glad I came this morning. Thank you. Number four, here's the last one. Generosity generosity giving. This is not being rich. It's being generous. Life that's generous and open-handed and full of wise stewardship. Here's the deal. The most important reason for you to manage your resources well is it's not your money. You didn't bring it into this world, and you're not going to take it out. It's coming and going really fast. Psalms 24 says the earth is the Lord's, not Satan, I'm sorry, and the fullness of it and everyone in it. God says, Back up, Sparky. I own it all. I own Microsoft. I own Tesla. I own everything. It's yours to steward. It's not yours to own. And as a believer, that's 101 Christianity. I'm a steward of time, talent, and treasure, and I'll give an account for that. I can go to heaven, but I'll give an account for how I was wise or stupid. And the vital sign that matters the most in your financial dashboard is being generous.
It's not about how much you have. It's being generous. God talks about that throughout the Bible. The prophet Malachi said to his people, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Tithing was a practice unique to Israel. They would take 10% of all their resources, cattle, uh, grain, anything they had, as an expression of trust and putting the Lord first. And they would give it back to God to cultivate generosity with the blessing of God promised over their crops and their herds. It was a promise. Uh, honor the Lord with your substance. Substance. And the first fruit of all your increase. First fruit was the 10%. God, God says, I want to be first. Seek first the kingdom of God. God says, don't put me at the end of the road. Put me at the top of the list. I'm the one that paid for your redemption. I put my life on the line for you. Now put me first as a, as a means of trust, and I'll take care of you. So none of the other ancient tribes did this. Israel did it. And God says, trust me in this. Bring the whole tithe that there may be food or provision in my house. Now I know of no other command from God where he tells people, test him. Usually, Scripture says, thou shalt not tempt or test the Lord your God. But right here, he knows how much we clutch our money, and he almost says, I dare you. I give you permission. Test me in this to see if I won't provide abundantly for you. Now, let me tell you what that means. It doesn't mean he's going to pour out barrels of money. It may be good health. It might be a good marriage. It might be a good career. It might be our children don't go into wah-wah land. They're pretty much steady. God says, I'm going to give you a rich life. I'll give you enough to live on, of course. But sometimes we read that scripture and it's got God's just out there backing up Brinks trucks, dumping cash. No, I know a lot of guys with cash that would give all that cash to be well, to be healthy, to have a good marriage, to have a stable life. So there's so many ways you can interpret that. So how are you doing? How would, how would people, how would the doctor classify you when it comes to generosity? See, when Cindy and I got married, we said one thing, one thing we're going to get right. And we're going to put a stake in the ground. We're going to take the first 10% of whatever God gives to us and give it back to God. We'll tithe. And we've done that from the day we got married, giving that to our local church. Then above the 10%, as, as we had uh, extra money, we would support ministries or needs in the church. Right now, Christmas blast, we really need your support. But that was above our tithe for the church. And sometimes we helped other people. But we've always done that. And I've done it since I was 18 years old. And I have to say, I am so glad we have. How are you doing? Do you trust God with the tithe? Then ask him to help you build a generous heart. See, this business of giving is so important to God. And one of the interesting ways, it's a reflection, are key words in the Bible kind of interesting to see how they're used and how often they're used? How about the word faith? 272 times in the Bible. How about prayer? That's a real important word. 371 times in the Bible. Love, whoo, that's huge. 741 times. Fear, 365 times. But the word give, 2,162 times. How you can be a stingy Christian is beyond me. You can be an ugly Christian. You can be a slow Christian. But how do you not be, how do you be a, a stingy Christian? It's not even part of God's DNA. The most famous Bible verse is God so loved the world, he gave the best he had. Giving is a heart deal. 
It's not intended to be a terrible obligation or a rule that you're supposed to observe with a grudging spirit. So Paul writes to the Corinthian guys and says, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word for that little word cheerful is hilaros. We get our word hilarious from it. It makes it an exercise of joy. And if you start giving, eventually you'll get there to that joy. And if you wonder what God thinks about it when people are so selfish and so stingy, when this whole world is in trouble and there's so much need and poverty and hunger, what does God think about it when people just clutch and hoard and hold? Well, the book of James and a lot of other places really make what God thinks really clear. He says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. <laughs> Any questions on that passage? <sighs> Wish God would be more clear. No, that's pretty clear. See, see, the Bible is terribly direct on that because you're not going to hear that from our culture. You're not going to hear about it from the gods of more and now. But you're going to hear it from Jesus, who though he was rich, for your sakes became poor. We'll hear about it from him. So guys, with a checkup, grading yourself, how are you doing on these gauges? Living on a budget, living free as you are able from debt, getting wise about saving margins and generosity. I'm telling you, I make no apologies for this at all. When you invite God into your financial life, when you surrender your finances to God, you go on a spiritual adventure nothing else can replace. What a cool thing it would be to have a community of people who are so committed to following Jesus that in a culture that says more, 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 now, 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 we just say to Jesus, yours, 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 here, here, here. What a cool thing that would be. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.